So just to begin, if you would both like to introduce yourselves and introduce Sami Dune. Okay, hi, um, my name is Charlotte Cates. Um, I'm the International Coordinator of Sami Dune Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network. I'm based in Vancouver and I have been involved in Palestine organizing and you know activism for justice for some time. Um, when I went to Palestine on a delegation in the mid 2000s, one of the things that our delegation did was observe um, the military trial of uh, PFLP General Secretary Ahmed Sadat. And even before that time, and certainly after, um, working around the issue of Palestinian political prisoners is central to the liberation of Palestine has been something that I've been working on. Um, but I will uh, turn it over to Layla before we talk more about like the history and background of Sami Dune. Hi, uh, my name is Layla. I am the local coordinator of Sami Dune, New York, New Jersey. Um, I've been involved in various political activism for a few years now, um, involved in specifically Palestine activism, um, this actively for about a year. Um, right now, I'm working on uh, growing the New York, New Jersey chapter of Sami Dune. Great. Thank you both so much. So I'd just like to start off with if you could tell me a brief history about Sami Dune, how it got started, um, and the political context of it, of its origins. Um, and then we can talk a little bit more about the specific activism and the goals of Sami Dune. Absolutely. Well, Sami Dune Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network fundamentally is a network of activists, organizers, um, collectives, and organizations working to support the liberation of all Palestinian political prisoners as a central part of the struggle for the liberation of all of Palestine from the river to the sea. And within that context, we view that as a struggle against um, Zionism, imperialism, and reactionary forces that align themselves with Zionism and imperialism. And this is the framework around which Sami Dune organizes. Now, we were launched as Sami Dune in 2011. And on one of the, we launched for a very kind of practical reason in a lot of ways, which is it was launched by people, um, including me in, in Canada. Um, and what was happening in 2011 was that there was a hunger strike of Palestinian prisoners. Um, this was included the strike of um, Ahmed Sadat and many of his comrades against isolation. He had been held in isolation for three years. And um, Sadat as the general secretary of the PFLP is both one of the most prominent leaders of the Palestinian left, but also of the Palestinian national liberation movement as a whole. So, this also this hunger strike took place right before the Wafat al-Ahrar prisoner exchange um, with the Palestinian resistance and the Palestinian prisoners, which over a thousand Palestinian political prisoners were liberated. And also, and um, there was also a demand for the end of isolation. And that's what brought this hunger strike to an end. This was receiving a lot of coverage at that time in 2011 in Arabic media and in Palestinian media. but even though there was a growing solidarity movement with Palestine, and there had been for many years, this was only two years after Castled and Gaza, when there were massive turnouts around, um, certainly across North America, but around the world in support of the Palestinian cause. One of the things that we noticed is that most of this information that existed in Arabic wasn't making its way at that time into English. Um, and so people who wanted to know 
about the Palestinian prisoners didn't have a lot of access to information. And if they did have access to information, it was mainly in the framework of human rights, which is a legitimate and important form of advocacy, um, particularly on the legal level or in the international level in defense of Palestinian political prisoners. But at the same time, it is a limited approach that looks mostly at the Palestinian prisoners as victims of the crimes of the occupation, which they certainly are, but not really as leaders of the resistance, which they also are just as much. And that second role is really important on the political level for the solidarity movement with Palestine, especially if we think it's important that the discourse and understanding of the solidarity movement with Palestine internationally is congruent with the Palestinian resistance's views of those situations. And so we do think that that's important. So we launched Sami Dune almost initially as a project of translation. Um, and so, you know, translation of news from Arabic into English and then other languages, but also translation of an outlook and a message that framed um, a revolutionary approach to Palestinian politics and viewing the Palestinian prisoners um, as people who are being subjected to horrendous crimes by the occupation, but also people who are leaders in their organizations and leaders in their national liberation movement, who have important things to say that people around the world and especially in the solidarity movement need to hear. Um, and so that is how we launched. Now then at, shortly after this happened in 2012, is when there was a real rise in hunger strikes against administrative detention. You had the case of Qadar Adnan, the case of Hana Shalabi. Um, there was the uh, Karame hunger strike, which thousands of Palestinians joined to kind of continue the struggle against isolation and many other demands. It was a successful mass hunger strike. Um, and so there, these events kind of galvanized a lot of attention around the prisoners' cause as well, which led Samadhi to grow, um, become stronger, and start to reach out to people in various places in North America and internationally. And so over time, um, we went from being this project of translating a political perspective on the Palestinian prisoners as central to the liberation struggle to becoming a really active network of chapters and organizations with new groups and organizations starting in different cities and different countries and places around the world, including in occupied Palestine itself. And so today the Samidun network is based on that very fundamental principle, you know, that the Palestinian struggle is a struggle against Zionism, imperialism and, react and reactionary forces that, um, we are standing with the Palestinian prisoners in the struggle for liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea, that struggling to liberate Palestine also means confronting imperialism in all of its forms, and that um, the Palestinian prisoners are the are leaders of the Palestinian resistance. They are a point of Palestinian unity. They are a Palestinian leadership that, unlike the Palestinian Authority, has not been compromised by Oslo and has not is not a, a framework that is primarily, you know, dominated um, by compromise or attempts to seek accommodation within imperialism with the United States and the European Union. Um, the majority of Palestinian prisoners are from the Palestinian popular classes, and in addition, the struggle of the Palestinian prisoners is also an 
an internationalist struggle. Of course, the Palestinian struggle as a whole is internationalist. As Hassan Kanafani said, the Palestinian cause is not for Palestinians only. It is the cause of um, every revolutionary and of the, of the oppressed and exploited masses in our era. He may have said that 50 years ago, but it rings just as true today. And particularly around the matter of Palestinian political prisoners, this is also a means where we build alliances with other national liberation movements and other struggles that are also fighting against colonial um, methods of imprisonment and so we can and and through and against the imperialist system of imprisonment so that you know also includes with the black liberation struggle and the indigenous struggle here that includes with prisoners in Colombia in India in the Philippines in Turkey um, certainly in Europe and really everywhere in the world um, definitely in Egypt and Saudi Arabia in all of these cases where what you are looking at are prisoners who are fighting against these same forces of reaction, imperialism, and Zionism as part of one cause. And so this is an important bridge of internationalism for us. So I think that kind of gives a general overview of where we've come from historically and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, thank you so much. And, um, and Leila, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Nope, uh, Charlotte definitely covered it for that one. Awesome. And I, I would just say before the next question, I, I think, uh, you know, and especially interrogating as you did the notion of like this human rights framework uh, and kind of we were talking a little bit before about the NGOization of, of pro-Palestinian activism and how it's very focused on this very overtly kind of liberal interpretation of human rights and often isn't interested in straying into territory where, you know, potentially advocacy can can start to feel a little bit more controversial. A lot of them prioritize and, and over-prioritize to a certain extent um, people who are perceived as innocents in in a situation of occupation and don't consider anybody else. Um, and that, that's kind of where I want to pick up the next question, which is, to what extent is life under occupation criminalized on an everyday basis? And how can we comprehend a, a situation where, you know, there have been recent reports, and I think everybody is very familiar with the notion of, of apartheid uh, in the occupation, but of course, even this term has been sort of liberalized to a certain extent to mean a definition of apartheid, which is very, you know, like uh, based on a human rights solution. We just need to, you know, change the court system and advocate for, politi for uh, political equality and voting rights for everybody and not deal with the basics of everyday criminalization, mass incarceration, um, and this real biopolitics of, of apartheid. So I'm curious about that, you know, how to, what does criminalization of everyday life look like and how does it impact Palestinians living under the occupation? Sure, so um, I will start with this one. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me would be uh, the extrajudicial extra killings um, that happen quite often in Palestine, whether it's an explicit murder in the streets, um, like in the case of uh, Gada Sabatin, the 47-year-old mother um, who was just uh, shot and killed by Israeli forces near a military checkpoint, um, to uh, Fatima al-Masri, the 19-month-old child who died after being denied medical care for five months. Um, she lived in Gaza. It's an open air prison, as we know. So she was denied multiple um, requests to go to a hospital in the West Bank to get her treatments 
done um, and she died waiting. So, you know, sometimes these killings are, they shoot you and sometimes they kill you by denying medical care. Um, you know, there are also children being killed in the same way as, in the same way as Sabatine, like shot on the street for what can most simply be described as childlike behavior or nothing for no reason. Um, another would be the movement, the lack of ability to move from place to place in Palestine. So um, the checkpoints, obviously, you know, if we're talking about apartheid, like the checkpoints are there for Palestinians and they're not there for Israelis. There are different roads. So, you know, if you want to travel 15 minutes, um, what would for us be a 15 minute car ride? Um, it'll be hundred, uh, an hour and a half for a Palestinian and 15 minutes for an Israeli. And there's no guarantee that you'll even get where you're going. There's no guarantee um, that you'll, you'll be allowed to go. And I mentioned earlier, Gaza as an open air prison. We talk about the prisoners, um, the prisoners who are literally incarcerated in jail, but Gaza is a prison, people can't leave. Um, you know, where else in the world is that happening? Uh, housing, uh, you can own a house, you could have bought it with your own money or inherited it, and it can be demolished at any time. You can receive a summons and have to demolish it yourself or have it be demolished or be kicked out for settlers to move in. Yeah, thanks so much. And with that, I'm curious, so this is kind of the way I think people are not, are not really able to grasp criminalization. And for example, you mentioned housing, and I think people became more familiar with the notion that, you know, someone can just move into your house and just take it over. And that is uh, a specific type of, of settler colonialism, of course. Uh, and I'm interested too, with this notion of, of criminality, of course, like there is a particular legal framework being applied here. And for example, I, I think everybody became sort of familiar last year with the the rhetoric, like the rhetorical choice of using the word eviction as a sort of legalizing mechanism rather than calling it dispossession or displacement, something that is more uh, true to the actual situation. With that, I'm, I'm with this situation of, of like this legalistic or, or presenting legality in some format, I'd like to learn more about the system, the criminal justice system, if you can, of course, can't call it that injustice in any capacity but the mass incarceration system and the criminal system and just the ways in which Palestinians on a day-to-day -day basis cannot find any recourse for justice through the system. Um, sure, um, just checking in, would you like me to take this one or would you like to take this one on the legal system? Um, do you wanna take that one, Charlotte? Uh, why don't you go ahead and then I can add, maybe add a little bit at the end. Sure, sure. So, um, so specifically about the legal system and the prison system, you're asking. Okay. So, what makes um, the situation unique in Israeli jails and in Palestine is uh, would be administrative detention, meaning they can. Uh, incarcerate you for any length of time for any reason or no reason and they don't have to tell you so they will jail you without without charge or trial um, indefinitely basically 
Um, it can be, it can look like literal kidnapping. They'll show up at people's homes in the middle of the night and just take them. There are some people um, who are in and out their whole lives, um, held for X amount of time, never told why. Um, and there are also, as of right now, I can actually pull it, I had it up. Oh, there are um, 160 child prisoners in Israeli jails. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, they, they punish children in this way, they criminalize children in this way. Um, 160 right now, uh, 549 serving life sentences. Um, so they also rely on torture and solitary confinement to, um, to get confessions out of people. And, um, you know, many of us, here in the US are familiar with the Central Park Five. Um, that's kind of something that just happens all the time in Palestine and also the lack of medical care in prisons. Uh, people are sick and dying in these jails. Um, you know, I mean, you've got to imagine like if Fatima Al-Masri died waiting for medical care and she's not literally in a prison, she's in Gaza and she's a child what are they going to do to people who supposedly, according to the occupation, have done something wrong? Um, is there anything that you wanted to add, Charlotte? Sure, I'll just add a little bit more about the legal system specifically, um, which is that whenever you know a Palestinian prisoner is arrested, seized from their home, taken from the street, taken from their campus, from uh, their community, from their place of work, I and mean, most of the time this happens in nighttime raids, so, you know, when you in the when the morning dawns in Palestine, one of the things that comes out every day in the news is a list of the 12, 13, 20, 19, 24 or 17 people that got arrested the night before that got seized. And a lot of the times this is in nighttime raids where literally Israeli occupation forces come to your door, explode the door off of its hinges. Um, march inside, you know, tear a person out of their bed, including child prisoners, by the way, this is this practice of night raids and night detention is used against children, adults and elders, people of all ages and circumstances. Um, it is used against people who um, are living with various physical disabilities. It is used against people who are uh, need medication? Who do not? Who are who are barely able, if they are able at all, to bring their necessary treatments with them? Um, then Palestinians are taken to interrogation. This is typically where the highest level of torture and abuse comes in, both physical and psychological forms of torture and abuse. Over 90% of Palestinians report that they have gone through some form um, of torture uh, while they are detained. This goes for everything from very vicious threats to imprison or arrest other members of the family, um, sexual harassment and abuse to physical beating and kicking, being thrown in the back of a military Jeep and hit with the back of a rifle. Um, you know, one of the most notorious cases most recently was that of uh, Samar Abid, who was um, in 2019 was seized and he was beaten so badly that um, 11 of his ribs were broken. He was in a coma for over a month. He was taken to um, when he was taken to the, when he was finally taken to the hospital. Then, when he was in the hospital, 
um, an Israeli soldier released a tear gas within his uh, hospital room, leading him to develop pneumonia and chronic kidney disease, none of which he had before he was arrested. And so that's one of the most kind of recent severe cases, because sometimes uh, the Israeli occupation forces try to say, oh, we used to do that, but we don't do that anymore. Now things are uh, now things are different. We have to obey the rule of law. But the reality is, is that the rule of law is an entirely colonial system of law that is only created for the purpose of sustaining an, an, um, an illegitimate and unjust, uh, you know, Zionist state that was implanted on the uh, based on the dispossession of Palestinian people in Palestinian land. And so the entire purpose of the Israeli criminal justice system, civil justice system, whether it is in the military courts or in the so-called civil courts is with the basis of sustaining this settler colonial project. And um, that's the entire purpose of its existence. And so what you see is the Israeli Supreme Court saying, oh, well, we allow moderate physical pressure. And so we can call what happened to Samar Abid moderate physical pressure um, because the Palestinian is cast as the terrorist and the terrorist means that anything can be done to that person. Um, and because the terrorist means that which has the capacity to undo colonialism and settler colonialism, that which has the ability to resist imperialism and Zionism. Um, and so after this process of interrogation, which is the, an attempt to extract a forced confession from this person, um, there, the uh, Palestinian might be sent to administrative detention. In many cases, this is because they were unable to extract a confession. They were they or they don't even try. They, they this is often done for community leaders, um, student leaders, women's organization leaders, labor leaders. They will be seized, and you know they two days later they have an administrative detention order against them. And I should note that since January of this year, over uh, there are over 500 administrative detainees. This number has shot up since the beginning of April, and. Um, we don't have the exact statistics yet, but we there are estimates it's over 600 now held without charge or trial, but all of the administrative detainees are engaged in a collective boycott of the military courts um, because the military courts will kind of rubber stamp these administrative detention orders, which as Leila said, are indefinitely renewable. And so Palestinians are routinely held for years at a time with no charge, no trial. Um, and this is an ongoing collective struggle since January 1st of this year, 2022, to bring this to an end. If they're not taken to the, to the to administrative detention, they can be charged before the military courts. And when you're charged before the military courts, uh, you are charged not on the basis of violating the law, but on violating military orders that were put in place by what's called the uh, commander of Judea and Samaria. Um, and so these military courts, you know, the what is illegal at any given time can vary based on the whims of this military commander. Now, it's important to note that being a member of pretty much every Palestinian political party is criminalized as being a member of an illegal organization. This also applies to student organizations, women's organizations, um, grassroots organizations of various kinds. Uh, throwing stones is the most common charge against children in the military courts. So the military courts you know, are, are military courts in which civilians are being dragged before. Um, where there is no real process. So you, the, they are conducted in Hebrew. Um, testimony is brought in from confessions obtained through torture, both by the person themselves and by others. They're just, even though the entire file is secret in administrative detention, much of the file can also be secret in the military court. So it's not any more of a just system. It's just a more, there's just a charge and an allegation. Then um, Palestinians in Jerusalem and Palestinians in 48 and some Palestinians in Gaza will be brought before the Israeli so-called civil courts because of course, Palestinians from 48 hold Israeli citizenship. 
But when something is designated as a uh, nationalist act, which means that the person is designated as a security prisoner rather than a civil or criminal prisoner, then a different set of rules apply in the court. And so rather than the vaunted Israeli justice system, which is cited as an example of, you know, uh, positive criminal justice reform in which people who are convicted are allowed weekends to go home and visit their families or to work and things like this. That is not the case if you are classified as a security prisoner, which is the term that Israel means that means political prisoner. That's what it means. It means political prisoner, but they call it security prisoner. And so it, you get once again, you have the torture evidence being allowed in. You have Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship who are also being held in administrative detention without charge or trial. Because of course, uh, Palestinians from 48, Palestinians who are Israeli citizens are fundamentally just like all other Palestinians living under colonialism. Even though the color of ID might vary, and there might be various circumstances that are different. Fundamentally, what you're looking at is the way indigenous peoples are subjugated under a system of settler colonialism um, that has been put into very violent effect. And it should be noted that the entire process of the military courts that exists in what we might call 1967 Palestine um, was adopted from the system of martial law that was originally imposed on Palestine 48 between 48 and 67. And so, um, in essence, that's why we have Palestinian political prisoners in the same uh, areas, in the same cells, in the same blocks from all areas of occupied Palestine. So I, I, it, I also just wanted to say what, one more note about the criminalization of Palestinian political organizations, because uh, last year in 2021, in uh, February, Sami Dune was listed by uh, Israeli war criminal and so-called defense minister Benny Gantz as a so-called terrorist organization. And why were we listed this way? Because we work to defend Palestinian political prisoners. It is very simple that being a, you know, working to provide an international voice and serve as an international ally and arm of the Palestinian prisoners movement is something that the occupation views as terroristic simply because they view Palestinian existence and resistance and life as terroristic to the whole process of settler colonial extermination. Um, and this, of course, was followed in August by designating several organizations in the diaspora, and then in October by designating the six um, human, Palestinian, prominent Palestinian human rights NGOs with the same designation. But you know, what we're seeing is a systematic use of this term to designate um, in particular anyone working to hold Israel accountable internationally or to provide support to Palestinian political prisoners with a terrorist designation to make to attempt to silence this work to criminalize it both within um, occupied Palestine, but also within the imperialist countries that serve as partners to the occupation and overall and so um, it, it kind of just indicates why it's so important to fight back against the use of so called terror lists within the imperialist countries, which very much mimics and is often built upon um, the same processes by which Palestinian political organizations are so designated within occupied Palestine. Thank you, that was a fantastic explanation of that. And with that, I'd actually, based on that answer, I wanna modify perhaps the next question slightly. So beyond just talking more about the mass uh, incarceration and, and criminalization in Israel, what you, you mentioned reminded me, I think, to a large extent, as, as, as it would anybody, of the similarity of this type of mass incarceration with that of the United States uh, and other settler colonial countries. 
And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the parallels we see. Uh, for example, you know, something that a lot of uh, pro-Palestine activist groups in the U.S. have been pointing out, um, not just recently, but for a long time, is the deadly exchange and the connections between the U.S. police forces and uh, the Israeli police forces or the occupation forces. So to what extent do we also see the mass incarceration system itself to parallel and reflect that of the United States and, and how, um, you know, when you were mentioning torture, it, it, it sounded like the use of, of a euphemism reminded me of enhanced interrogation techniques and that, that sort of euphemism as well. But to what extent do we see kind of this exchange too within the, the prison system itself and overlapping conditions of, of you know, oppression and, and uh, as you were mentioning as well, you know, this political prisoner status being imposed on, on anybody who is a challenge to uh, the regime or to the way the country is being run. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that as well of these parallels we see between mass incarceration in occupied Palestine and in the United States. Leila, would you like to talk about this? Because you've you already gave some really great comments about this topic earlier. Sure. So um, I'll say a little bit and then I'll turn it over to you, Charlotte, because um, I'm sure you'll have a little bit more to say. But um, yeah, um, I I think about this a lot because um, you know, in our in our movement here in New York, we talk a lot about how um, the Palestinian struggle is inextricable from the Black American struggle. Uh, the struggle is really the same, um, largely because of the mass incarceration of um, our people, but especially young men and boys. Um, so, uh, you know, in the US, we see it. Um, the prisons are obviously it's legalized slavery. Um, people go to jail for any reason and for no reason. Um, people are incarcerated for crimes where mostly black men are incarcerated for crimes where the person allegedly looked like them or maybe the description didn't even fit them. They just happened to be a black person who had been in the vicinity at the same time and that's very similar to um, to what Charlotte was describing, where you know they'll arrest you, they'll raid your house. They don't raid your house here, but you know it's um, a different process and a different system, but similar effects. Um, and you know we don't have administrative detention here, but um, people don't receive the same legal counsel or support that someone in a of a better social standing might receive. So um, there are people here who fall through the cracks. And you know, of course, there's nothing like there's nothing quite like Palestine happening in the world right now, but the struggle, uh, it's difficult, it's difficult to separate the two struggles. Um, and like I said, right down to the interrogation tactics, especially with children. Um, I don't have statistics right now, but young black and brown boys are taken advantage of in that way. They're told, you know, if you just tell us you did it, you'll be able to go home. And they have to be a little bit trickier here um, than, than in Palestine, but, but they find a way. Did you have anything to add, Charlotte? 
Oh, no, I think that this is um, very much on point. I also just wanted to note that there are various um, articles in which Palestinian prisoners have also commented on this. And of course, in which, um, which black liberation activists, including political prisoners and former political prisoners have commented on this dynamic as well. Um, you know, so there was, um, there has been this kind of resonance of the stories of Palestinian political prisoners and um, black revolutionaries who were jailed, who have been jailed as political prisoners in the United States. This is a resonance that's been felt for decades. And there has been um, some great work in kind of the, the artistic kind of uh, commonalities as well as differences, because these are different struggles. They're not, you know, one struggle. We don't want to flatten them or compress them into one struggle, but we can see that what we're talking about is a structure, a system of imperialism and colonialism, which has systematically um, target, which has systematically targeted peoples and nations. And those include um, black people in the United States, they include indigenous people throughout the Americas, throughout North America, um, and that also includes Palestinians. And this of course includes nations, the nations of the global South more generally to use this term or you know, countries who have been forcibly underdeveloped um, and who have been, and which have been um, subjected to U.S. imperialism, and so we see these crimes of imperialism taking place um, both within the borders as well as outside the borders of the, of, of the country. And so, um, this is uh, this is an, a long-standing and, and mutually recognized struggle. So, for example, um, in the 1970s, when the PLO was still led uh, by forces that were revolutionary, it was the PLO that invited the American Indian movement um, to share offices at the United Nations to work together to confront um, US colonialism and imperialism and its ally, the Zionist project. Um, you know, we hear about comparisons with South Africa, but that's not something that just started in 2001 and it's not something that started in 2005 or even in the 1990s, in, in the 1970s and, and 1980s. Um, Palestinian researchers at the Palestine Research Center in Beirut, which was later bombed and destroyed in 1982 by the Israeli occupation, were producing studies on comparative settler colonialism in Southern Africa and in occupied Palestine and how that was related to the crimes of US imperialism. So, I mean, I know I'm going kind of more global here, but this is also very much the same case. This is very much the case, um, you know, both Malcolm X and Che Guevara were in Gaza before 1967. And Algeria was a center not only of national liberation struggle in Africa and in the Arab region, but it was also a center um, of struggle that drew black liberation activists and organizers from uh, the United States and from North America because it presented an example of a successful revolution overthrowing colonialism. And so, um, and fighting against massacres, incarceration, imprisonment. So when you talk about this, the deadly exchange, it certainly occurs between police departments and between prison systems and corporations. Like, so, you know, this use of Israeli training for police departments or corporations like G4S, um, you know, owning, uh, being one of the largest security corporations in the U.S. and also um, owning a stake in Policity, the Israeli police training center in Jerusalem. And it's important to know that, like, when we talk about Israeli occupation forces, um, much like when we talk about police in the United States, we're not just talking about the military, right? In Jerusalem and in occupied Palestine 48, by and large, we're talking about police forces, the border police. But just as we see in cities and communities across 
this land, police are serving as a colonial occupation force um, in order to violently extract um, land, labor, um, and anything else that is, is sought from, from people. And so um, there's, there's this kind of deadly exchange, but there's the fundamental you know, deadly exchange of imperialism and Zionism. Um, on this continent and certainly in the Arab region as well, where you know every year the U.S. provides over $3.8 billion in aid to the Israeli occupation. And that's because it's, it's specifically a military and colonial interest in order to do so. And it's why it's so critical for us to fight back against and work to bring it to an end. Absolutely. And I, I think, as you noted as well, the comparison with Apartheid South Africa has been very longstanding and the also settler colonial characteristic of, of that regime in addition. So there's a very, very clear overlap uh, between these countries. With that, I, I'd like to go into more about Samadun and in particular what kind of activism uh, you know can be done for Palestinian political prisoners, uh, what the organization does, and and also I guess just just a more general question about. Um, on that note of, of what can be done, um, you know, on, on the subject when you're going up against, as, as you were just mentioning, a very highly militarized, uh, very well-funded um, settler colonial project by the United States, you know, global military that runs the world. I wonder how organizations can fight back against this and can provide opportunities for um, Palestinian political prisoners who as, as we were talking about earlier, most organizations are quite happy to sort of abandon and not support uh, because it's a little bit too controversial. So I wonder about the work that Semidun does in trying to help uh, prisoners in particular. Well, I'll give a little bit of sort of our international work and then I'll turn it over to Leila to talk more about specifically um, work that's being done in, in, in her chapter. Um, so we engage in a variety of different kinds of activism and organizing and we view ourselves as building kind of a popular movement in order to in order to support the struggle of palestinian political prisoners we know that it's the palestinian resistance that is winning the freedom of palestinian political prisoners through their fight and through their struggle but we also know that it's important that we break the isolation that Israel attempts to impose upon the Palestinian prisoners. Because when we look at the prisoners, we can say, you know, these are people who are leaders in their communities, leaders in their societies, leaders in their unions, leaders in their organizations, but they're also leaders in our international movement. And the and Israel wants to make sure that they are isolated. And, and when I say Israel, this isn't to give legitimacy to the project, but to, to name the, the Zionist project that's taking place. Um, the, the purpose of this isolation isn't just to lock this, this individual behind bars. It's an attempt to undermine movements, to destroy resistance, to prevent people from communicating with one another and organizing, to disappear the voice and the reality of the Palestinian resistance and its leadership and dismember it by doing so. And one of the things that we are working to do is to break that isolation and that take that breaking that isolation can take many forms from kind of public campaigns that are focused on highlighting the stories of individual prisoners or of collectives of prisoners such as the administrative detainees the child prisoners the women prisoners those with life sentences those who are sick and ill um, as well as building 
pressure and mobilization that actually recognizes these prisoners as people who are central to any vision of global justice because these are because it's it's the Palestinian resistance in many ways that is one of the greatest hopes of anti-imperialist struggle in the world. And so when we talk about people like Ahmed Saadad or Hitam Safin or um, Marwan Barghouti or Walid Dhaka, we're talking about people that we should see as when we talk about a global leadership for a, a, for a left, for a social justice movement, these are people that should be part of that and are being forcibly kind of restrained or kept out as much as possible by the occupation regime. And so we view one of our roles as working to break that isolation um, creatively as well as physically. Um, so, you know, there is, we organize demonstrations, we hold awareness events, we work to build boycott campaigns and campaigns that target corporations, government officials, um, and other projects that are directly involved in either profiting from the incarceration of Palestinians or um, in promoting and sustaining and funding the incarceration of Palestinians. Um, we work to build solidarity specifically with the prisoners within the global movement and solidarity with Palestine and within the global social justice movement. Um, we wanna make sure that this solidarity isn't just limited to, for example, the administrative detainees who deserve all of our support and solidarity as they work to fight an incredibly unjust system and bring it down. But we're not saying that only those who haven't been charged or tried deserve to be free. The Israeli occupation does not have the right to imprison any Palestinians. It does not have the right to exist. It does not have the right to imprison any Palestinians and every single Palestinian prisoner must be free. And so what we're also working to do is to build popular support and awareness for the Palestinian political prisoners in order to also provide the popular basis for the struggles of the Palestinian resistance to free the prisoners and to raise the voice and serve as the a bridge for the Palestinian prisoners movement itself to the Palestine solidarity movement and really to people of conscience around the world. And that also involves, of course, doing as much as we can to consolidate our power and consolidate our forces. That also means not just siloing off the question of Palestine, that we have to be part of fighting back against US imperialism um, and, and its allies in the world. And we have to be part of all of the struggles against imperialism and, and, and colonialism, because it's only by building that kind of unity and internationalism that we can successfully um, you know, work to confront. We are confronting an alliance of the most reactionary imperialist forces in the world. We are confronting an alliance of the regime of the United States imposing its domination on the world through um, direct military occupation or by economic sanctions that are designed to strangle. Um, we are confronting the alliance with sort of uh, other, the, the historical perpetrators of colonialism in Europe and the United Kingdom with various reactionary regimes and forces that are working in the interests of imperialism in order to suppress popular movements. Um, you know, much as we see in, in the Arab reactionary states like the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia or Bahrain, where there is an attempt to pursue normalization with the Israeli occupation, building on top of the normalization of the Jordanian and Egyptian regimes, all of which um, you know, works only to strengthen 
This was all taking place not independently, but under the auspices of US imperialism. And so we fundamentally view the struggle as one that's just absolutely necessary to be involved in building a broad anti-imperialist movement, because when we consolidate our forces, when we consolidate the forces of the people, of the nations, of the populations that are fighting back against imperialism around the world, that is the way that we can win. That is how we can bring support to the Palestinian people and their resistance. And when liberation for the Palestinian prisoners and for, the, and for all of Palestine from the river to the sea, um, by you know, doing everything we can to put an end to this system of imperialism that has um, extracted so much of value from the peoples of the world and wants to continue to do so uninterruptedly. So, I mean, in terms of that, we engage in all forms of activism and campaigns, you know, whether it's letter writing to the prisoners, which is this very small action, you know, go, we're going from this big talk of anti-imperialism to this very small action. It's a very small action that actually works to break that isolation. It helps to support the morale of the prisoners themselves. And it also sends a clear message to the occupation that you have not succeeded in isolating these leaders. You have not succeeded in isolating these fighters. People around the world care and notice and see every single one of these 4,450 people that you have locked behind bars and they're not invisible, they're not isolated and they're not alone. So everything from these very small things to building the strongest boycott and isolation campaign against the occupation regime possible is um, you know, something that we are involved in and want to do. And of course, the specific campaigns that are adopted by each local chapter can really vary from place to place, depending on how that chapter is organizing, who their membership are, where they're working, but always within these principles and goals of um, and framework that the, that is fighting imperialism, fighting Zionism, fighting reactionary forces, and working together to build a popular movement, um, you know, not just through kind of legal tactics, although those are important. It's important to do legal advocacy, but our focus is on the popular and mass movement advocacy for the Palestinian prisoners in order to support the struggle of the prisoners themselves and of the resistance to obtain their freedom. But that's kind of an overall view. And I think it's good to take it to a chapter view because that's a, that gives you a really direct look at, you know, what can you do in your specific area? Um, yeah, so obviously I echo um, everything that Charlotte has said. And on a local level, we try to mirror the sentiments of Samidun International as much as we can and as much as um, makes sense in the current, in the climate of where we are. Um, and I'll get into a little bit of that as I explain um, what we really do in Samidu, New York, New Jersey. So um, we, we really try to unify uh, Palestinian revolutionary um, left in, in New York and New Jersey. Um, but also, you know, we work with any of the, the organizations in the Palestinian movement here, as well as uh, other oppressed people's movements, other leftist organizations, um, other national liberation movements, most of which would have their own political prisoners as well. So um, that's something that, that we all uh, co can come together on, unfortunately. Um, another thing that we constantly have to think about is the volatile nature 
of the enemy uh, in Palestine and also in New York City. So, you know, we make our plans, um, you know, we, we host our actions and our educational events, but everything is always kind of subject to what's happening in Palestine and what's happening in New York City. So, um, you know, for example, like things have been really volatile uh, to say the least in Palestine. So we've had to change some of our plans the past couple of weeks. We've had to uh, plan an emergency action and um, shelf some of the smaller actions that, that we had planned. Um, political education is very important to us. So when things are a little bit quieter and when there's less that we have to respond to, um, we will try to do um, political education events, letter writing events, um, and you know, mobilizing our community is important. So direct action. Um, and that can either look like preaching to the choir. Um, so going to a Palestinian neighborhood and mobilizing the community because people need those morale boosts. People need a reminder that, you know, we can do this work um, to the opposite end, which would be marching to the Zionist mission. So how do we cause disruption that might happen um, more in, you know, midtown. And, um, you know, we do have to think, think quickly and also um, allow ourselves to be guided by what Palestinian political prisoners and Palestinians in general need from us. So it's always about looking internationally, looking to Palestine, um, asking and gleaning what is needed to the best of our abilities. So, um, we try to really let that guide us, not let um, New York City and whatever the will of the city and the movement is. While we do try to support our communities in New York and New Jersey, um, we are really guided by um, the international and Palestinian movement. Um, Charlotte, can you think of anything that I may have missed or not touched on about our local work? I think that's a great view of local work. And I also I do want to say that um, you know, we have a number of chapters in cities and countries around the world, and all of those that their work kind of reflects their local conditions and circumstances and what makes the most sense there. But we also I also want to say that we do invite others who are interested in getting involved in either starting a chapter or becoming a member of Semidun to get involved and to reach out to us if you're interested in finding more and finding out more about how you can, you know, either start a chapter or, you know, become an affiliate uh, of, of the network where, you know, your organization is already doing work around Palestine, but you want to do some focused work around political prisoners. Um, we think that this work is really important for the Palestine because from Palestine, we can hear from the resistance and from the movement, right, from the National Liberation Movement, the Palestinian political prisoners are at the center of that struggle. And these are, these are the people who are sacrificing and living the struggle and leading the struggle for liberation. And so we have a responsibility to do everything we can to make sure that their voices and their work are seen and heard and are also like taken seriously and dealt with within the left more broadly and within the solidarity movement more broadly. And so um, we really invite others to get involved with us in doing that as well. Yeah, thank you. That, that was an excellent answer. And I think I would absolutely echo that, that 
anybody listening should absolutely get involved. Um, I would love to kind of, again, sorry to change the order, but just to spring off of that response uh, and talk a little bit about, as, as you were mentioning, Leila, the, the urgency of right now, especially um, after this past weekend. So I think a lot of people watching will definitely be familiar with what happened over the weekend. But perhaps just to add a little bit, if, if you'd like to talk a bit about what happened and in particular, the impact that it, it will have with, I saw a, a number somewhere that said about 400 prisoners had been taken after the raids uh, on Al-Aqsa. So I guess just how you know this attack manifested and also the potential for, for a greater crackdown. Um, all of this, of course, coming during Ramadan, but this is typical of of uh, the occupation to do something like this, and how you know this will potentially lead to further repression, further incarceration, and uh, and yeah, just a further escalation of attacks by the occupation. Sure. So, um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, um, Israeli forces have uh, had raided Al Aqsa Mosque last week, I believe it was. Um, with Metters reporting at least 158 Palestinians injured. Um, and the uh, Israeli police said at least 300 Palestinians uh, arrested, but it was more like 400 according to Palestinian sources. So um, as you said, this is something that they do every Ramadan this time, and usually they do it uh, early in the morning before the first prayer. And as we know, uh, Ramadan is the holiest month for the Muslim people, so um, it's an extremely horrendous and provocative attack. Um, and Charlotte, you can, you know, add if you if you would like. But um, what I would think that this is is uh, just a, a provocation of Palestinian resistance and Palestinian people. So basically, whatever they do in retaliation for this kind of attack will then be treated accordingly. Um, they'll be able to arrest more people and kill more people. And um, it'll just, they'll call it like an invitation for more, um, more attacks, basically. And for us, this means, you know, um, being out on the streets, um, being on social media, talking about it, drawing attention to it, and um, basically letting uh, people in our community and abroad know that we know what's happening um, because obviously mainstream media is not going to give an accurate account of this. So it's our job um, as activists in the movement here in New York City and internationally to make it very clear, um, to be disruptive, to make sure people in New York City know about it and people everywhere know what's happening and have their eyes on it and are watching what happens next because we know that this isn't going to be the last um, the last of this for now. I just to say that, you know, what we've seen in, in Al-Aqsa um, last week and then on Sunday again is, you know, an unending stream of colonial violence. And every Ramadan, we see this repeated again and again, where, um, first of all, the Israeli occupation wants to do everything it can to turn this struggle against colonialism into what they can describe as a religious conflict. Um, to sell this kind of false narrative to people of the world that this is simply a conflict about religion, that this is a struggle between religions and, and that's it and that, you know, people should just be neutral. 
because, you know, these are just different religions having issues with one another that cannot be understood when in fact what we are looking at is a systematic system of colonialism that is fully supported and backed to the hilt by US imperialism and it's not complicated or difficult to understand at all. Um, in fact, what we're seeing is people praying at the holiest time of the year being fired um, upon with live bullets and tear gas and ammunition um, in order to allow this kind of fanatical set of settlers to come in and preach for the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque and the creation of, of, of a temple instead. And this is something that should um, theoretically provoke outrage around the world. And I think it does among people, right? And so that's one of the reasons why we don't you know, always, we, we see kind of corporate media or state media providing a description that says, oh, there are clashes taking place. And as if this is an equal thing that's happening when what's really taking place is that there is a colonial military attacking people and people working to resist and defend um, their holy sites and their land from continued colonization that's been taking place for the past 73 years. So, um, and of course this is a very, um, this is a very sensitive topic because these are people's holy sites that are being attacked. And, and that's, and, and so there's an absolute outrage. And there's also, I think a very, um, the resistance, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza has grown a great deal and has strengthened itself very much and is also really quite strategic and recognizes that it has the power to send a message to the occupation to stop these crimes. And so that's one of the reasons why we've seen, for example, occupation officials suddenly saying, oh, we're not, we're not having settlers come to slaughter sheep. We're not doing this. Why is that? That's not because they want calm. If they wanted calm, they wouldn't be sending armed forces in to fire bullets into a mosque. Um, this is because they are actually concerned about the growing strength and power of the, of the Palestinian resistance because the, the colonial entity is supposed to uh, suffer nothing while the colonized people suffer everything. And the resistance is reversing that equation and showing that in fact, it is not possible for the occupier to maintain um, perfect security while also maintaining its colonial status and, and, and system. Yeah, thank you both so much. Um, and I, I would, you know, also second that that hopefully people are paying attention to this and not trusting the same usual rhetoric that gets used. And I would hope that after May of last year, people are a little bit more cognizant of the way that this rhetoric is used, and and hopefully are, are a little bit more aware of uh, exactly as as you're saying, Leila, the potential for this to continue and, and unfortunately perhaps follow the same pattern as it did just last year with very eerily similar uh, events. And the last thing I, I would want to ask about is just to center in on one uh, particular case of a Palestinian political prisoner. Um, over this past week there has been a lot of, uh, this is even before um, the attack on Al-Aqsa, a lot of renewed attention to the case of, of Ahmad uh, Manasra. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about his case in particular, why there is this renewed attention. Um, and also, you know, just reading a little bit more about the conditions he's faced within uh, the, the prison system. And, and I was reading a bit about psychological conditions that he's suffered and, and stress from, from his incarceration. So yeah, I would, I would like to potentially bring his case up and, and talk a little bit about it um, since I think people have become aware of it over the past 
uh, month and, and especially last week. Sure, so I can give a little bit of background about the case and if Charlotte wants, she can jump in after and um, provide some, uh, some greater context or explain why um, you know, it's so important. Uh, but Ahmed Manasra, he um, was initially um, accused in 2015 of uh, stabbing two settlers, which he didn't do. He was allegedly with someone who did. Um, there was a video showing him bleeding on the ground and gasping for help while Israeli bystanders were shouting at him and beating him and telling him to die. And this, um, this got widespread attention. A lot of the initial outrage came from this. Um, and there was another video of Ahmed um, undergoing harsh Israeli interrogation, the same type of interrogation that we discussed earlier. Um, and later, the courts had acknowledged that he had not participated in the attack, um, but he was still charged with attempted murder, um, despite that, despite that admission. Um, and this is a complicated, not, it's not a complicated case. It's um, a striking case because uh, at the time of the arrest, Israeli law stated that children under 14 could not be held criminal, criminally responsible. So uh, to circumvent this, they waited until he turned, turned 14 to sentence him. Um, and he has been held in solitary confinement for the past five months. Um, in December 2021, uh, an external doctor was allowed to visit him, and, uh, and this was the first time that he had been allowed a doctor, an external doctor, um, since his impri imprisonment. Um, the doctor was a psychiatrist from Doctors Without Borders, and in his medical report, he stated that Manasra suffers from schizophrenia. Um, he said he is suffering, he is a chronically mentally ill patient, patient, and there is a real danger to his life. The last time I visited him three weeks ago, he asked me whether I am sure it is unlawful in Islam to, uh, for people to kill themselves. So this is a case of someone who is enduring every, basically everything that we've discussed already um, in this conversation. He's a child, um, he's sick, he's, he's ill, he's mentally ill, he's enduring absolutely incredible levels of abuse. Um, and we've, we've seen that on video. It started, you know, in 2015 and it's still happening now. Um, he's denied medical care. Uh, he, he was held in solitary confinement. It's just, you know, we see all of these things in, you know, most of our prisoners are at least one of these, check at least one of these boxes, but he, um, He's all of them. So uh, there's, it, you know, all eyes are on him. There's widespread attention based on this initial outrage and also um, this new information that he's severely ill. Um, we already know that he's innocent and he's he has continued to be held and abused in this way. And yes, I mean, this is really accurate. Um, discussion of Ahmed Manasser's case, I don't have a lot to add. I just want to note that whenever I have actually shown the video of Ahmed's interrogation when like giving a presentation about Palestinian child prisoners, I've had to give people a warning before I show the video because it's very upsetting. And it to, just for people to watch the video 
And that's in a room full of adults watching the video while listening to a presentation about the conditions of Palestinian child prisoners. And Ahmed was a 13-year-old boy going through that and experiencing it hours after he watched his 15-year-old cousin die and bleed out next to him while he himself was lying on the ground and being told, you know, go die um, as a 13-year-old and then subjected to systematic solitary confinement, um, which, you know, for Palestinian prisoners is particularly difficult. And I just want to note this because one of the most important aspects, kind of one of the things that enables Palestinian prisoners to still be leaders and to still be resistance organizers and to still be fighters is the intense level of collective camaraderie and mutual support and political education that is maintained within the prisons. And this also includes very much that which is provided for the young prisoners, for the child prisoners, by the adult Palestinian prisoners. Um, because this is a context in which, you know, there, there's a, a kind of a, a slogan that the, we turn the dungeons of the occupiers into schools for revolution. And that can be literal schools. For example, Palestinian women prisoners, when the occupation refused to provide a teacher that was supposed to be you know, under the law provided for the women prisoners, who, the girl prisoners who were minor girls who were supposed to be completing their high school education and they were not being provided with a teacher, um, those women prisoners who had, um, you know, who had a college education, who had a university education, who knew that the subject matter, who were teachers themselves, they created their own curriculum um, to, to support these young women who all did wind up passing their Palestinian high school exams, not because of something that was provided by the occupation, but something that was provided by um, the prisoners themselves. Um, and that's also the case for uh, study circles, for reading groups, for political discussion groups, and, and the occupation is always attempting to disrupt these things. And solitary confinement and isolation is a mechanism that particularly when used against Palestinian child prisoners and detainees is a very, um, it's an experience of torture and of isolation, but to an even greater level than we can sometimes imagine it because it's also about cutting people off from this critical social um, framework of support that is often one of the only things that enables young Palestinians, Palestinian children who have been subject to this form of, of systematic and state abuse state-funded, state-sponsored abuse and torture um, to be able to provide meaningful psychosocial support. The only thing that's providing that is their fellow Palestinian prisoners. And so, you know, putting people in solitary confinement is a really intense form of torture in that regard. So it's really great to see how much support, um, you know, the people from the Palestine uh, Global Mental Health Network and others have mobilized in support of Ahmed Manassara, that, you know, over 100,000 people, 150,000 people have signed on to this petition. And it shows that when people do hear the real stories of Palestinian prisoners, um, they realize that the reality is that the perpetrator of terror is the occupation and its sponsors. And the Palestinians who are locked behind Israeli bars are the people who deserve freedom, justice, and liberation. Thank you both. That was an incredible summary of the story and, uh, and great insight into exactly what's happening. And Hopefully that can clarify for people who, who have seen it uh, on social media a little bit recently. My very last question I'd, I'd like to ask about, and then 
Um, the floor is yours for after that for anything else you'd like to talk about or any shout outs, any more information you'd like to do. But I would like to just ask about uh, April 17th, the day of solidarity uh, with Palestinian prisoners. Just yesterday, I think today is the 18th, but I lose track of the day sometimes. Um, but yeah, you know, this. how did this uh, day of commemoration come about? Uh, how has it been marked um, by Samadun? And, and yeah, just I'll let people know about that day in particular. Sure, well, this is a day that's been marked by the Palestinian National Liberation Movement since around 1974. There are many descriptions about why this date was chosen, but, that, but um, fundamentally this day has been a day in which um, the Palestinian Liberation Movement and people around the world who work in solidarity with Palestine highlight the cause of the Palestinian prisoners and make it clear that, that um, the Palestinian prisoners are, symbol, are prisoners of freedom and symbols of freedom that resonate um, both in Palestine and internationally. And so um, historically, this has always been a day of marches, demonstrations, mobilizations, and the same is very much true today. And so um, in, in terms of this year, uh, Sami Dune is part of uh, 10 days of action for the Palestinian political prisoners between 15th and 25th of April. Now, of course, this is also coinciding with the response to the attacks on Al-Aqsa with these ongoing Israeli um, invasions in Janine, um, with the ongoing attempts to displace Palestinians in Al-Nakab. So there's a lot of um, responses that people are engaged in to support Palestine. But what is important is to keep the prisoners as part of these struggles so that it's not siloed off or separated into a matter that you know is only for one day but it's a day that we can use to reflect consider and highlight the the political um, message of what's happening and and why it's so important to support palestinian political prisoners i do want to say that today um, for palestinian prisoners day there was a statement that was released um, through Sami Dune to people around the world that was um, supported by the leadership of, of all of the organizations inside Israeli occupation prisons by the leaders of the prisoners movement. And I think that there are just a few things that I want to convey from this statement that our Palestinian people continue their valiant resistance against Zionist colonialism and its racist policies, affirming their determination to continue their struggle and resistance in all forms in order to obtain and implement their rights to life and freedom. The relationship between the prisoners and the people of Palestine is that of the blood to the body. There is not a single Palestinian family that has not been subjected to the brutality of the occupation and the experience of arrest. More than a million Palestinians have been imprisoned since the start of the occupation in 1948. Um, today on the day of the Palestinian prisoner, we renew our call to the revolutionary and progressive forces supporting our people globally to deepen and expand the comprehensive international boycott movement against the occupation, its institutions, and its corporate and institutional supporters. Um, on, our liberation struggle was and remains an integral part of the international struggle against the forces of colonialism, imperialism, Zionism, and reaction. Accordingly, we salute all the political prisoners in the world, the struggle of the Black Liberation Movement in America, the struggle of the indigenous peoples for self-determination and liberation, and all the liberation forces in the world. And we call for strengthening the relationship between these movements in all Palestinian communities in exile and diaspora. Our freedom as prisoners in Palestine will inevitably come with the liberation of all of our people. We will defeat the prisons with the end of Zionist colonization in Palestine. And you can read the full statement on 
website, there's more of it and it's worth reading. Um, we have it available in English, Spanish, French, and Arabic, um, the original Arabic of the statement. Um, in addition, these days of action are also days in support of the collective Palestine Bankra, which is an organization in France based in Toulouse, which is also a member organization of the Samedi Network, which was subjected to what's called administrative dissolution by the Macron government in France. And we've seen a real escalation in the use of dissolution in the past, uh, during Macron's time in office, 15 organizations, including mosques, again, including the Collective Against Islamophobia, um, now an anti-fascist organization. And on the same day, the Collective Palestine Bankra and another organization, the Comité Action Palestine, were both subjected to this dissolution. And the reasons given for the dissolution were like number one, supporting the boycott of Israel, but like the number three reason was supporting the liberation of Palestinian prisoners and supporting the liberation of George Abdullah, who has been jailed for 38 years in France and who is a, a Lebanese communist struggler for Palestine. And so specifically, working to achieve the freedom of a political prisoner held in France was given as a reason by the French government that the collective could be dissolved. In other words, banned. And if you organize an event in the name of, collect of the collective or hold up its flag, you could face arrest, fines, or even imprisonment. So um, this is a really serious matter. And it's part of this kind of, you know, when we talk about imprisonment in Palestine, you know, there's a continuum, right? So there's this mass incarceration and imprisonment that we see in occupied Palestine. But when we look at the censorship of Palestine organizing internationally, when we look at anti-boycott laws, when we look at, for example, in the United States, the imprisonment of the Holy Land Foundation Five for sentences of up to 65 years for charitable work on Palestine, the use of um, so-called terrorist designations and terror lists, when we look at the imprisonment of George Abdullah in France, the uh, deportation of Palestinian writer Khaled Barakat from Germany, all of these are not separate from this process of incarceration that's taking place in occupied Palestine as methods of targeting the Palestinian people in exile and diaspora, and also their friends and supporters around the world. It's an attempt to silence this cause. And so that's why we see this taking place at the hands of the very same imperialist states that are responsible for colonization in the region for the support of the Zionist movement and now for uh, the support of the current um, Israeli occupation state. So this is you know, all in one continuum struggle. And so we do think it's very important during these days to also support the collective and its, its ongoing fight back against this dissolution and to stop this um, incredible shrinking of public space that is currently taking place in France, which in many ways is built on, built almost explicitly on the legacy of French colonialism in Algeria and elsewhere in Africa. Um, and to, um, because it, you know, the collective is fundamentally an anti-colonialist organization and that's why it's fighting for Palestine. And so um, this is also why this struggle isn't separate from Palestinian Prisoners Day because we need to fight back against this kind of criminalization and repression wherever it's rearing its head. And that's certainly uh, the case within the imperialist states that are the tightest, the most tightly linked with the occupation in Palestine. Thank you so much. And, and Leila, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Nope, Charlotte covered it. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much um, for taking some time to speak with me. And I, I really, really appreciated speaking about this subject. And I, I really appreciate, I know everybody listening probably does as well, the work of Semi Dune. And I guess my last thing would be, you know, any time, any 
anything you want to shout out or anything else you want to say, um, the floor is yours to add anything. Um, I'll just say, you know, anybody at Cornell or anybody who's listening who um, is looking to get involved with the chapter, you know, New York, New Jersey has been active for not that long. Um, so just letting you know, we're here. Um, I know Cornell students specifically are a little far, but uh, I was saying earlier, we're used to international work. So um, couple hours is nothing to us. Let us know if you want to get involved. Yes, just want to reiterate everything that Layla said. And um, if you have questions about the Palestinian prisoners, if you'd like to know more about the struggle, if you want to organize a film screening, if you want a speaker from Sami Dude to come to your event, um, reach out to us. And we, we know that, you know, uh, George Abdullah always has a, a, a sentence that he closes his statements with. Um, it is together and only together that we will win. And we know as, an, as Palestinian prisoners often close their statements with that victory is inevitable for Palestine and for the peoples of the world who are, who are fighting colonialism and imperialism. And so um, I invite you to join us. However, we can build alliances and mutual relationships of struggle and work together because it's together and only together that we will win. And um, most importantly, the Palestinian people and the Palestinian prisoners will win. Absolutely. And thank you so much for ending with that, because that's an amazing way to conclude. So thank you both so much um, for speaking with me and, and take care and solidarity. Continue with the amazing work. Bye. Thank Thanks you. so much. It was great talking. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Bye. bye. Thanks.